We want to focus this morning on those last two sections of Matthew chapter 12. All the kids at this time can be dismissed. We've kind of had a straggling crew heading out towards the kids' classes. So as we look in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus gives this fascinating ending where he speaks of a demon-possessed person who gets a demon cast out and then finds themselves actually in more danger at the end than they were at the beginning being possessed by a single demon. And then he has another confusing statement where he says his true family are those who do the will of his father. He points to his disciples. I want to unpack these verses this morning with you all. And as we consider them, let me just remind you what has happened in the chapter because I think it's, it's relevant for a few reasons. Jesus having engaged all the way from chapter 11 in a rising conflict with the leaders, the spiritual um, shepherds of Israel, the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the conflict is, is increasingly intense. And as this conflict grows, Jesus is more and more willing to boldly confront them with words, calling them to repent of evil. So if you go back to chapter 11, you initially see not an enemy, but a friend asking Jesus who he is. And so in chapter 11, verse 2, John the Baptist, who's in prison, hears of the deeds of Christ, asks, uh, sends his disciples to ask because he's imprisoned. And Jesus' response in verse 4 of chapter 11 is, go and tell John what you see and hear. And, and then he identifies several miracles and works that Jesus has done as proof that he is who he says he is. He says in verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news or the gospel preached to them. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. So that's John asking Jesus the sincere question, who are you? Jesus' response back is, this is who I am. Now Jesus' response by identifying all of these lists of works is to not simply claim to be the promised rescuer of Israel, but to show by proof of deeds that he is who he says he is. In other words, anyone can claim, right? Anyone can claim to be anyone. So you have this shy newspaper man who happens to be Superman. Anyone can say they're Superman. That's a really interesting phrase in the middle of a sermon on Scripture. Anyone can claim to be Superman, but it's not until you're leaping buildings in a single bound and flying like a plane that we all say, maybe it's actually Superman. So how does Jesus identify his character? It's not by simply claiming and, and, and saying that he is, but he shows that he is, in fact, the hope of Israel, the promised rescuer from sins by doing by showing his power, by rescuing people from the brokenness that sin brings. Now recognize that's a significant point. Sin brings brokenness to our marriages, to our children, to our bodies, ultimately to the point at which we could say that we are all in the slow process of dying. We jokingly say there are two things that are inescapable in this world. Death, and the punchline is taxes, but there's truth to that. You are going to pass away and into eternity at some point in the future if the Lord doesn't return before then. 
We all know that. So Jesus comes as the rescuer and he is raising people from the dead. He is healing people from blindness. He is causing deaf people to hear. People who can't speak can now speak. He's raising those with broken bodies to life again, to, to wholeness again. So they walk and are freed of the afflictions that sin brings to us. It's all pointing to the irrefutable reality. He rescues from sin because he's rescuing people from out of the consequences that their sin, and, and frankly, the whole race, all of our sins have brought upon us. And so as the one who is showing he is the rescuer, he expects people to trust him as the rescuer, to put their confidence in him. And he's preaching to a hardened nation. Recognize Jesus didn't just do gospel rescue, he preached the good news. He preached to people. It is interesting if you go to the Old Testament when Moses says, Lord, let me see your glory. Do you know what Yahweh says to Moses? I will show you the backside of my glory and I will preach to you. It is one of the startling elements of God's exposing himself and showing his glory and revealing himself to us that he does so through the preaching of his word. Even in the Old Testament, when Moses wants to see God's glory, God preaches. When he sends the Messiah, the Messiah preaches. I've mentioned it before, but to me, it's one of the most stunning realities in church life. That we gather together, and the best churches, in their best moments, are simply broken sinners preaching to broken sinners of God's revelation. And in the foolishness of preaching, 1 Corinthians says, God's wisdom is revealed, and dead men and women come to life. Spiritual, eternal life. So as Jesus is not simply doing miracles that confirm he's the Messiah, he's preaching to these crowds of religious leaders as well as just the everyday poor that are walking under the oppression of the Roman government. He's preaching and performing miracles. Look with me in chapter 12, verse 30. The, the Pharisees are antagonistic. They're pushing against Jesus. They're calling him a pretender. They're saying he's in league with the devil in verse 30, he has these startling words. He says, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever is not with me is against me. I fear that our culture doesn't believe that this is true. Invariably, politicians will claim to be Christians to gather to themselves the vote of Christians. And because it's not so unpopular to be Christian, very few politicians that, that succeed on the national scene claim to be atheists or even agnostic. They all claim Catholicism or Lutheranism or I, I think uh, Jimmy Carter was a Baptist. Why? Well, let me just ask you. Let's just do an interview here in Bakersfield. What does almost every person in Bakersfield claim to be? A Christian. It's popular to claim and to identify with the, the, the Christianity of the culture. So I just want to ask you 
the question, is the Christianity of the culture the Christianity of Christ? Is the Christianity of Bakersfield the Christianity we see in the New Testament? Now, to be a Christian in the New Testament caused persecution. And not, not just when the Apostle Paul begins doing his missionary journey. Go to chapter 11, look in verse 2, where is John the Baptist? He's in prison. He gets his head cut off because he had the audacity to say that the sleeping around leader was immoral. Because he married his brother's wife. That sounds pretty immoral. Can I just, like, rabbit you for just a moment? Pause in the sermon, step aside here. Our politicians, almost to a man, are immoral. Please don't act like they're not because you like one. It is right and righteous for the church to have a clear-eyed view of the fallenness of the politicians and the people who lead us without being disrespectful. And if you're a Republican or Democrat, I can honestly say that the guy you probably vote for for president this year is immoral. I don't think that's a stretch. It doesn't matter if his name is Joe or Donald. They're both sinners, corrupt in their nature, whose professions I think we should be highly skeptical of. I'm not the judge. But I think it's wrong for the church to act like neither one of them, just because we want one or the other to be president, somehow is spotless and clean and virtuous. John the Baptist loses his life for speaking out against a politician in his day and age. So don't, don't think that Christianity or the church shouldn't speak out on politics. John did. At the same time, John didn't do it to be political. He did it because the message of Jesus Christ is a message of repentance from sin. It's a message that calls upon men and women not to trust in the secular governance, not to trust in their own goodness, but to trust in the Messiah alone. Jesus stands in the middle of that culture, a culture of spiritual hypocrites, a culture of spiritually oppressed people, a culture of people that are rebels against Rome within 30 or 40 years of this time will rise up in rebellion against the Roman government and be squashed as a nation. And so Jesus gives this fascinating analogy. Uh, maybe you've heard of flyover country. It's like Wyoming. You know, like there's nothing there except grass and flatland and a few deer. There's not much you're missing if you fly over it. I think in scripture, we feel like there's flyover country. So we read a verse like this and it's flyover. We don't even get it. We think, ah, there's not much there. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. 
so also it will be with this evil generation. You read that, you go, huh. Let's keep flying over. And you don't understand what Jesus is actually doing is condemning the culture, condemning the person of the culture that's a child of it. Now here's, here's his point, so let's just walk through the text carefully. We have this picture of a man who's, a, who's possessed by a demon. This guy's in trouble, right? So we have this man oppressed and possessed, controlled by the powers of hell itself. And along comes this moment of grace. And he's rescued from this oppression. And he receives this mercy. The demon is taken away from him. And the man's life is restored to good order. But there's something lacking. What's lacking in this man, in Jesus' analogy? He, he says something like this. When he comes, that, that is the demon returns and finds the house. What, what's that next word there? Finds the house empty. A house is meant to be filled, dwelt in. You might be familiar with another word we use when we talk about dwelling. When the believer has the Holy Spirit, he is we say indwelt. That's like one of those Christianese terms. It means there's someone living in you, right? Indwelt. I don't think any of you say that about your home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is our indwelt house. <laughs> right? we, don't, we don't use that phrase, but that's what we mean. We dwell here. We live here. We occupy this place. Our decorations are up on the wall. That family picture, that's us because we dwell in this house. So here's Jesus Christ giving this analogy to show these people What's happening in Israel as a nation is also happening among these people as persons, as, as individuals. Jesus Christ has come through the nation of Israel as this cleansing wind that's removing the oppression and the brokenness of sin. He is raising people up. Their bodies are, are, are broken. They're paraplegics. They're quadriplegics. They're filled with leprosy and diseases and demon oppression. And what's he doing everywhere he goes? When he feeds 5,000 people, they walk away with bellies full. And John indicates when he started preaching the message, they left him. Now, here's, here's what we should be seeing then as Jesus is preaching about the nation. He's using an individual demon possessed as that example to teach us this point. Grace is flowing through the nation. They're seeing the Messiah walk among them. They're seeing him do works of mercy. They're seeing the gospel lived out in his faithful followers. They're seeing the preaching ministry of John the Baptist who keeps, keeps pointing to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They see grace upon grace upon grace upon grace and they love it. But they're empty shells. What are they not doing? with the Messiah. They're not embracing him as their Messiah. They're enjoying the privileges, the benefits of presence. But they don't believe in the person. Maybe we could, we could at least by analogy, recognize that there are some people who really, really enjoy dating they enjoy the person they're dating. They enjoy interacting with them. They enjoy the relationship and the affection and the romance. 
but they never want to commit. I don't think I'm talking to any of you boys out there, but if you're getting an elbow from a girl you're dating, it would make sense. Maybe someone needs to commit. There's, there's a sense in which you can seriously enjoy a lot of a person without commitment. And Jesus Christ is looking at Israel and saying, you're enjoying the gospel ministry, the good work I am doing, my, my, my gracious, sin-removing presence. But you don't want me. You just want the goodness I bring. I think this is the message Bakersfield needs to hear. We call ourselves Christians. We identify as Christians. We want our kids to go to church that though they raise, they're, they're raised up to understand good morality and ethics are rooted in the Bible. But when we actually are called to personal devotion and commitment in the person of Christ. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know that I'm ready for that type of serious Christianity. I don't know if I'm ready for the John the Baptist lose my head to speak out against immorality type of Christianity. That's, that's like a whole nother level. And we almost have an idea of like, there's Christianity and then there's like next level Christianity. I'm going to get to heaven, but those guys, yeah, they might be a little closer to Jesus, but we're all going to be there, right? See, that's not, that's not at all what Jesus says, is it? Why don't you look again in this text? Then the Spirit goes and brings seven of its other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is what? It's worse. It's worse than the first state. Jesus' theological point is really simply said this way. There is no neutral heart. An empty vessel is a vessel just waiting for hell to move it. There is no neutrality in the human heart. You are either fully devoted to Jesus Christ or you are his enemy. Go back to verse 30. You're either for me or against me. There is no like, hey, you're locked in neutral. You're kind of figuring this thing out. You're either for Jesus or you're, again, I want you to hear that clearly. If you, had not, if you have not lived the last month or year of your life for Jesus, Jesus might be looking at you right now, putting his finger on your soul and saying, hey, you're against me. You're against me. If you are not for me, you are against me. And this calls for a radical heart commitment. It calls for a willingness to put yourself under the authority of Jesus if you want his healing forgiveness as well. You must take his authority. If you want him to be your savior, he must also be your king. Matthew has spent almost 12 full chapters preaching to us that Jesus is king. From the first chapters, where he begins with this line of descent that runs right through King David and ends with his descent with Jesus Christ as the son of David, the messianic king, all the way through chapters 12, Matthew keeps telling us he's king, he's king, he's king, he's king. 
What do you think the king expects of his subjects? Loyalty and obedience, like any other good king? And yet we have this kind of like fractured theology where we can say, I embrace him as king, I just don't know that I'm ready to do what he says. Can I be really blunt? That's stupid. You don't embrace him as king and disobey him. Let's be honest. What you say is, I acknowledge that he claims to be king, and that seems like a good claim. I just don't want him to be my king yet. But you cannot embrace him as king while rebelling against him in everyday life. He is either your king or he's your enemy. He's either your king or you are hostile to him. So there are a few verses every Christian ought to just fully saturate into their theological grid of the world. Some of them are in Romans 3. In Romans 3.10, the apostle is trying to prove to the self-righteous Jews that there are no people who are righteous. And he says, there are none that do good. There is none who seek after God. They're all gone out of the way. That is, they've all trespassed against God. They are all unprofitable. They all have mouths filled with a poison of vipers. So this is who we all are without God's saving grace. And so Jesus doesn't just call us to acknowledge he is king. He calls us to embrace his kingship. He calls us to accept and kneel before him every moment of our lives. Now, as Christians, I think anyone who is living that faithful Christian life recognizes there's been moments where you've disobeyed. God wants perfect obedience. No one yet living with a heartbeat has done it except Jesus himself and, and obedience to the will of his Father. No human alive, redeemed or unredeemed, lives flawlessly. And yet at the same point, the compass of our heart is to submit and love Jesus Christ. There is no neutrality. Romans 8, 7 says that the natural man, that is the man without the Holy Spirit, that's the point of natural man in Romans 8, the natural man is hostile to God. It's not just that we disobey him in our actions, it's that our, our natural heart's desire is to be liberated from any king, including King Jesus. And this is where the gospel has supernatural power to redeem and rescue. It calls us to Jesus Christ to submit to him, to love him, and to follow him. How do you know if Jesus is your king? I think Jesus answers that in this next section then. While he was still speaking, the people, uh, speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking him to speak. Now let's just pause here for a moment. Um, some of you might be surprised to find out Jesus had other brothers and sisters because you've heard from the Catholic theology that, that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And understanding what this means, you're going, hmm, there's a problem. She had other kids, right? Catholics have two solutions. Both of them are nonsense. One of them is that Joseph had other kids before he married Mary. In which case... Jesus had half-brothers and sisters from non-Mary relations. Well, the problem with that is Joseph would have granted them the Davidic descent 
to his firstborn male, not Jesus. So we lose him as messianic promise fulfilled if we go there. The other option is Mary had a sister named Mary. And that's also nonsense. Just on the face of it. I mean, I have met families who like repeat middle names. Mary did not have a sister named Mary. And the Bible identifies them as siblings, which probably means we should take them as siblings. While he's still speaking, his mother, his brother stood outside to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, look at this text, and you, you may not find a lot of connection. But if we start with the previous statement that there are no neutral hearts, you are either hostile to Christ or you are his disciple and his follower, then you might want to ask the question, how do I know? How do I know if I'm really his follower? How do I know if I'm really his? Well, the Bible indicates that the work of salvation happens, happens um, I could say it this way, the new birth happens unconsciously. That is, when God brings me to grace, I trust in Jesus Christ, but there's an internal change in my heart that happens without my doing of it. God changes who I am. 2 Corinthians 5 would say we're new creatures created in Christ Jesus. That new creation stuff by the way, just a little plug, we're going to talk about this tonight in our evening service. So if you guys want to dig deeper into what regeneration is, what the new birth is, how God makes us new creation, you should come back tonight. But it happens in a level in which we're not aware. Have you ever met someone whose story of salvation goes something like this? When I was 10, I prayed a prayer, and I thought I was saved, but at 27, I was living a messy, messy life. And I heard preaching and for the first time in my life, I realized. And they explained what they realized, and they say, and that's when I truly got saved. So for, let's just go from 10 to 27, 17 years, that person's living in a false hope. They think they're saved. They know who Jesus is. He's, he's the good guy in the Bible, and he died for our sins. They don't even know what that really means, but they prayed a prayer. They accepted Jesus Christ into their heart, and they think they're saved. And Jesus is speaking to a culture where they're all religious. They all claim to be God's people, a lot like us. And he's trying to give them a, a, a way of wrestling through the question, am I truly one of God's people? So here's his answer. He says, it's not by family blood that you become one of my family. Now that doesn't strike us as a very strong statement, but if you're Jewish, salvation is inherent to being what? A Jew. You come into Israel, even if you're an outsider, if you want to be rescued by God's saving work in the Old Testament, you would come to the temple and, and you would offer sacrifices and you would use those sacrifices as a faith point. That is just like in the garden where God sacrificed an animal to cover Adam and Eve and their shame and their guilt and to promise rescue in the future son of Eve. So every sacrifice in the Old Testament should have been, as they kill that animal, proof that sin requires a death penalty. 
And as that innocent animal dies for their sin, it's, an, it's, a, it's a preaching of a substitution. Lamb did nothing wrong. But the supplicant offering this lamb in sacrifice is the guilty party. And the guilt of, of that worshiper is transferred to the lamb that was innocent. And it shows that this lamb carries the death penalty for the person who did the sin. Boy, that's preaching Christ if you don't see it. That is, there is a lamb, John identifies in John 1, this lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world, this one who is slain for all the sinners who will ever trust in him, and he dies on the cross as a substitute, as an innocent lamb, so that anyone who believes in that lamb, King Jesus, who died for us, has their sins fully paid for by the cross of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, that was the message preached. But now we have a culture. They don't believe in the lamb, but they're sacrificing animals left and right. I mean, the assumption is that something like 200,000 lambs would have been killed on the weekend Jesus died. They could do the ritual. They could do the sacrifice in the temple. And they'd say, listen, if you want to receive the salvation that God promised in the Old Testament, you have to do the ritual. Jesus is sitting there preaching to them and saying, hey, listen, just because you join the family doesn't mean you're part of the redeemed. Every once in a while, we'll hear someone talk about their salvation, and maybe you've experienced this. Let's say, you know, I grew up Christian. And they're almost saying what this passage says not to say. Because I grew up in a Christian context, in a Christian church, and with Christian parents, I therefore am also a... Christian. Well, biblically speaking, if that's you, let me just tell you, that's a false hope. That will not save you. Being in a Christian context, going to a Christian church, participating in Christian community does not save you. How does Jesus identify his family? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is family. Now, his point is part of the redeemed family. They're my mother, my brothers, my sister. His point is the identifying mark of salvation is a life of devotion to the Father's will, obeying him. Now, how hard is it to obey? Sometimes it's really easy. And sometimes it will require your life. It will require more of you than you ever know in this life. This is why Jesus reminds his disciples, lay for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because sometimes this life calls you to give up the things you treasure. Comfort, freedom, money, the ability to pursue your own desires, the ability to escape sinfully from hard, hard moments of pressure and hurt. Sometimes God just calls you to stay the course when you feel like you're just getting ravaged and your soul is getting shredded. And he just says, be faithful. I think it's, it's helpful for us to recognize that obedience in the Bible is probably a little bit of a trifecta type of word where the Bible never uses the idea of obedience in a good way 
without also embedding in it two other elements. So it always accompanies faith and it always accompanies love. Okay, so, so you never have true biblical obedience that's faithless. Faithlessness, even if you're doing what God says, is still disobedience. Lovelessness is also disobedience. So I, I kind of think of it this way. I trust in God and therefore pledge him my loyal love and that results in obedience. If you take out any one of those three ingredients, it invalidates all the rest. They're kind of a package deal. And that being the case, anytime you mention one in the Bible, it's usually sufficient for a good, like a person who's in the scriptures often to assume the other two. So when you see the Bible saying, you must believe, scripture would always assume that true belief would lead to loving obedience. Or the scriptures might say something like, you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. He doesn't mean, and therefore you can do whatever you want and not believe. He assumes that that includes faith and obedience. If you truly love Christ, you believe in what the scripture says about him and you obey. You cannot pull out any one of those ingredients without invalidating the other two. Okay, so all obedience is faith-filled, loving obedience. All genuine love is faith-filled, obedient love. All genuine faith with me on this one? You get it? All genuine faith is a loving, obedient faith. To take away any one of those invalidates the other. Okay, so we come to this passage and Jesus says, here's one of the ways you know you're in my family if you do what? If you do the will of the Father in heaven. If you obey. See, in our culture, one of the ways we actually tell Jesus he's a liar in this passage is we live in a culture that says we can do whatever we want and we're still saved. I can live however I want and we're still saved. Sometimes we just do this directly. Sometimes we just act like the Bible is old and out of date and it doesn't matter. I'm amazed by how many people identify as Christian while living in immorality with no conviction of conscience with no desire to turn and repent. So you live with your boyfriend or girlfriend for four years, going to church, calling yourself a Christian, and Jesus says, here's how you know you're part of the family of the redeemed. You don't live in sin. You obey the will of the Father. Now listen, there are, there are Christians who get, who get stuck in sin, who are uneducated and, and not informed, whose maturity is just weak and, and shallow. I'm going to sound a little unkind here. God help the pastor in the church that didn't disciple you. Because if your church doesn't tell you to obey Jesus, that's a bad church. If a church doesn't identify sin for you and call sin, sin, that's a bad church. And, and so there are times where like, you, you meet this sweet Christian person who doesn't even know they're doing sin. And I will have a ton of of understanding and grace for that person. And, and, and they may be genuine believers, but let's just recognize what Christ says and sit under it for a moment. Genuine people in the family of God obey the Father's will. And if you have no desire to obey the Father, if you live in a constant state of rebellion to the Lord, 
you're not in his family. If you have no love for him, you're not in his family. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ as he's revealed in the scripture, you are not in his family. The reason Jesus says this is to clarify and then call to saving faith. He doesn't say this to condemn. Now certainly, if you're on the wrong side of this one, you feel it, right? You feel that, that kind of ugly finger pointing at you and saying, you're not in the faith. But that's not why Jesus does it. So you feel the hurt and you're like, ah, man, he's a mean preacher. Jesus does it to summon people to grace. How horrible would it be if you were to enter into eternity and realize you knew all about who Jesus was, but you were never part of the family because no one ever had the guts to offend you and tell you you actually weren't in it, that you weren't a true, obedient follower of Christ. I imagine you would feel a little bit of anger and betrayal at your spiritual mentors and shepherds and churches, wouldn't you? If you get to eternity and you realize you understood a lot about the gospel but not what it looked like to fully embrace Jesus Christ and you had been sold a bill of goods that was too short, too minimalistic, and too simple to ever bring you to saving faith. So let me just say this. If your heart isn't neutral, it's hostile to God, there needs to come a crisis moment where you turn from who you are, doing what you want to do, and pleasing yourself, even among Christians. Church can be pleasing among non-Christians too. That you turn in full-hearted faith, embracing Jesus Christ for all that Scripture says he is. It identifies him as king. Is he your king? It identifies him as a redeemer who rescues you from sin. Jesus does not rescue you so you can be freed from the penalty of sin, but still live in it. He frees you from sin so you can live for him. It identifies Jesus Christ as God who deserves worship and glory and honor forever. Is your life filled with love and faith in him? Do you recognize as the lamb that he is the one who died to save you from sin by paying the price and being raised from the dead shows he fully paid the price? Do you trust in that? Because if you don't, you're not part of the family yet. I want to take you back to chapter 12 again. Excuse me, chapter 11. I just want you to hear Jesus preach. Because chapter 12, he's hard. Like Jesus calls these people opposing him. You are children of vipers. You are like the devil. Like harsh preaching, right? Man, Jesus. We're way up to the nice, friendly, like soft, gentle Jesus. We always see in those pictures. He's always got like a lamb he's comforting and He's like healing people always. And now in this passage, he's like tearing it off and he's like ripping people up. I want you to look in chapter 11 because good preaching must warn of judgment by telling you you deserve it. But it calls you with a gracious, gracious call. Come to Jesus. So when you look in chapter 11 at the very end, look how Jesus, after just tearing them up, 
verse 20 through 24, says, woe, you're going to fall under judgment. You're worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. You're worse than them. Then he says, verse 28, come. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Jesus doesn't say he doesn't have a burden. He doesn't say he doesn't strap you with a yoke of obedience. But what he does say is he comes alongside of you and empowers you. And with his presence with you, you can live for him. He preaches judgment and grace side by side. If we only preach grace, my fear is we have a church filled with some believers and some who are not. Your heart is not neutral. You are born a rebel who hates God. And it takes a little while for that rebellion to show. I mean, like nine months, ten months. And if you have kids around that age, all of a sudden you start to see it. They start, they start yelling at you if you don't feed them on time. I mean, usually it's like screaming, but you know what I'm saying. You start to say no, and they look at you like, seriously? I'm going to do this. It doesn't take long. I mean, we're talking like a nine, ten-month-old kid. That will not stop ever. And it is only by God's mercy God rescues any of us because that is who we all are natively. No one is neutral. We are born hostile to God. We are born with our fist pointed to heaven. And it is not until the mercy and the grace of God show us who Christ is that we bend our knees and in faith and love and commitments to obey, we embrace the Jesus of scriptures. You are not neutral. You either love Jesus or you're his enemy. You either obey and serve him or you are a closet rebel or an out-and-out rebel. There are no neutral hearts. So if there are no neutral hearts, have you come to Jesus Christ? Do you love him? Do you embrace him? Because this is grace that God has saved us from us. And all the consequences of pursuing your own selfish desires. Our great and best hope for our nation is not going to be on a ballot this year in November. In fact, I think one of the applications you might see in chapter 12 at the end where he talks about this, this nation that has the wind of grace cleanse it from evil is that the answer for any nation is Jesus Christ. Because he's, he's both using the individual and the nation so that we see that the both are actually functionally needing grace. The great hope for the nation of Israel was Jesus would be king. The best and greatest hope for our nation is not a better president, no matter what his first name is. It's that redemption would blow through this nation and the fresh wind of repentance and turning towards Christ would transform its people. That should be our greatest hope and prayer for our nation, that God would rescue people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're going to talk politics, you guys ought to vote for and pray for the types of leaders that will allow the gospel and the church to preach freely 
and for the message to spread rapidly through this nation that we might see a recovery of the gospel. But for you today, since you're actually not not, uh, talking to your unsaved neighbors, you're listening, can we just acknowledge that if my heart and your heart doesn't start neutral, that the battle to follow Christ will never leave you. You will always find yourself getting up off your knees and starting to live for yourself. And the heart's position is to always be kneeling before the king saying, what would you have me do next? How can I serve and honor you next? How can I live in a way that exalts your name in my home next? Always looking to Jesus Christ and how you can please and pursue his will. And then asking him for grace and protection. So Christian, how are you doing? If this is the gospel, are you still living it? Or have you gotten a little bit numb, a little bit busy, a little bit distracted, a little bit hurt? And Jesus is kind of obeyed. He's obeyed on your terms, when it's easy, when it feels good. Or are you soul committed by faith to lovingly obey him? I would say that if we were to summarize these two passages, it's this thought. Full-hearted faith embraces all of Jesus and brings a person in, into God's family of grace. Full-hearted faith embraces all of Jesus. He is not a buffet where we get to pick the pieces we like. You get all of him or none of him. But Christian, live like he has all of you. Live like he has all of you. If you do not know Jesus Christ, if he is not your king, hear the warning of this passage. Jesus identifies in that section on the demon that the state of that man is worse. If you are in this place today because you think you love Jesus and you're saying, whew, boy, maybe I'm not in the family. Recognize that the grace of Christ blew through Israel like that fresh wind and cleansed Satan out of it. But because they didn't turn to Christ, Satan came crashing back in. And if in this moment the Lord has given you enough grace and clarity to see Jesus Christ and say, I need him, don't, don't you risk, don't you risk saying no to Jesus because the warning is serious. You might be in a worse condition tomorrow for resisting today, King Jesus. Embrace him, turn from sin, love him, believe in him, and obey him, and he will save you forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the warning that Jesus preaches and the grace that Jesus preaches. Father, we thank you that in preaching about the clarity of who he is and the heart not being neutral, that he calls all of us to repeat again and again our commitment to Jesus. Father, I pray that you would remind all of us to loyally recommit and reaffirm and renew our desire to obey frequently because, Lord, our hearts are weak. They're so easily distracted by the enjoyable things of the world. We're so easily disinterested because sin offers so much enjoyment in the present, but we know it's a corrupted poison fruit that leads to death. And even so, our hearts sometimes really want sin. But Father, I pray that you would sanctify your people, make us holy. But Lord, I also pray that there would be strong grace today 
that your spirit would work. Father, there is very little chance that everyone here knows you as Savior, that knows your Son and trusts in him. So, Father, I pray that through the Holy Spirit, you would call men and women to trust in Jesus, that you would bring life to those who are spiritually dead, that you would bring forgiveness and repentance to the heart that is hard and resistant, and, Father, that you would protect them from Satan's temptation to resist for another day. Lord, bring them to your grace, forgive them of their sins, and bring them to love Jesus forever. I pray that you do this today. I especially pray for those who are young, those who are teenagers, who remain on the sidelines thinking that they can choose another day, that they can remain neutral. Father, I pray that you would cause them to see the goodness of Christ, that they might run to grace today. Father, work in us. Help us to love Jesus and worship him faithfully this week because it is in his name and for his glory we do these things. Amen.